0: Well, I'm really happy to have Matt Stankwitz here from our firm. We call him Mr. Cryptocurrency. Matt, uh, glad you could join us. There's been a big enforcement action, and there's nobody better to talk to than you about the Citrix enforcement action. And the weird thing to me, Matt, is there's FinCEN did a consent order, and OFAC data settlement. But why don't you first off welcome and always good to have you on the on the podcast cuz we get good numbers when you show up and start talking about cryptocurrency. But tell us about sort of outline the enforcement actions.
1: Yeah, Mike, thanks for uh, thanks for the introduction and it's always good to be here. You know, I love my cryptocurrency and uh although all the, the stuff market, that goes on in the industry. Although but, the
0: market you must have lost some money in the recent tanking of the market, but who knows? It'll come back, right?
1: market's been hurting. That's why I haven't retired yet. So you should consider yourself fortunate. That's right. Hopefully it'll come
0: That keeps you working longer. That's what we need.
1: Right, right. But yeah, the, this recent enforcement action has been pretty interesting. One of the things I find the most fascinating about it is just the, we were talking about this a little bit offline, is how fast crypto, the cryptocurrency industry moves. And at this point, some of these activities and events seem ancient <laughs> in the history of cryptocurrency. This was right. almost two market cycles ago at this point, but it does highlight the importance of sanctions compliance and you know how these regulators are now beginning to catch up. So a thousand violations over a four-year period, a three-year period, excuse me, between March 2014 and December 2017. Basically, individuals from a variety of prohibited jurisdictions were using Bittrex. To, to transact in cryptocurrency, and Bittrex being based in Washington, to keep in mind,
0: An, and AML. AML. I mean, wh- it's funny because Conduct is all the way back to 2014 to 2017. But why don't you go ahead and sort of summarize what, yeah. what did they do first in the – what did FinCEN do, and then what did OFAC do?
1: Yeah, so these two investigations ran parallel to each other. A lot of the violations tended to overlap. So we'll start with OFAC first. So OFAC on the sanctions side found that there were just over 116 of the state of Washington in the U.S. were subject to these sanctions programs. So these violations included violations of the Crimean sanctions program, the Cuban sanctions program, the Iranian one the Sudanese sanctions program, and the Syrian sanctions program. Oh. So these were, like I said, over 116,000 transactions, the total value of which was over $260 million. And OFAC determined that these were pretty, you know, pretty substantial, pretty pervasive, and just kind of a mess. <laughs> we'll get yeah. into a little bit of what was going on there behind the scenes on how this could occur. Uh, but Before we do that, just jump to FinCEN real quick. So FinCEN found you know, violations stemming from February 2014 through December 2018. And during this time period, Bittrex had a very, very weak AML program. Even that might be <laughs> giving them a little little more credit than they deserved during this time frame. But it was, you know, it's pretty ridiculous. Again, we'll get into some of what they were doing behind the scenes. But during this time period, they had, you know, they were processing on average, 20,000 transactions per day. And they had a very bare bones, skeleton compliance staff behind the scenes. And throughout the first three years of this time period here, they did not file a single su- suspicious activity report, no SARS during this entire thing. Which In October is
0: 2017, why, this is so you know that right. some people are going to try to use this, particularly if they're not, you know engaging in kyc if they're not doing you know compliance with their they don't have an aml program
1: but yeah and up, then you know
0: back up one second matt you don't explain sure. like so bitrix was like a marketplace but they also uh I, i'm looking at it they hosted digital wallet services for storing and transferring cvcs but they also exchanged currency so i mean uh, cryptocurrency so i could sell my bitcoin on the exchange there or ether or whatever
1: yeah they were a cryptocurrency exchange so they're you know the most well-known competitor for them is coinbase they do a lot of similar things that coinbase did at the time so if you wanted to buy bitcoin that was bittrex was one of the perfect places to do that i believe at the time they did have an on-ramp for fiat currency meaning you could you know, connect your bank account and buy Bitcoin with just you know US dollars. One of the few exchanges that could do that at the time. So it was rather popular back in this time period. And they've struggled a bit since, but Bittrex during this period was one of the most well-known exchanges and, and extremely popular both in the US and, and around the globe. But okay. yeah, you could buy Bitcoin, you could buy Ether, you could buy, I think there were 260 different coins listed during this time period, which was pretty robust. The most Exchanges during this time period would list a handful, but if you wanted some obscure coins and especially some of the privacy-focused coins, you would go to Bittrex for that. And that's also partially how they got got into trouble.
0: So more than – did they have more currencies, cryptocurrencies than base? You know, in other words, were you – At could- the
1: time, yes. And as you know, somewhat of a cryptocurrency veteran, I used Bittrex at the time. To buy certain cryptocurrencies that I could not get anywhere else, so I was a pretty active user on it during the time frame, and that's why that's why I can say I, I know it was pretty popular back then. So it's not surprised to see that they did have some issues at that time. Keep in mind too that you know during this time frame the cryptocurrency industry was basically the wild west. <laughs> yeah, I mean basically anything went, and compliance was a complete afterthought. So again, no surprise you know, we're that we're saying, seeing this uh... now. We will probably see more.
0: But it was a, a money service business as defined under you know BSA regulations. So they had to have a AML program, particularly when they're selling in the United States or operating
1: in the That's United correct. States. That's correct. They were yeah. required to have one and it appears that they were not really aware of that until about October twenty seventeen. At that time at that time the IRS reached out to them wanting information about their BSA program. Right. And Bittrex apparently did not have much in place at that time. So we saw a flurry of activity from them shortly after that. And in fact, again, like we said, they had filed no SARs up to that point. And then that first month after receiving that subpoena from the IRS, they filed 119. <laughs> first week <laughs> so, right after, yeah. That's yeah, pretty much the that
0: Yeah, that's right. So wait, they paid OFAC, what, $24 million? And then they paid like around the same amount to FinCEN, and I don't know if they credited one against the other.
1: They did. OFAC's fines were $24 million. FinCEN's fines was $29 million, but credited against OFAC's fines. So I believe in total they're paying $29 million.
0: So what kind of, going back, Like what kind of compliance program did they have? What kind of controls? I mean, yeah, how many people did they, little. <laughs> what did they do? Like, what did they do, if you
1: know? Yeah, yeah, so let's go back to the sanctions side of things first. At that point, again, very limited sanctions compliance program. They were aware of sanctions at that point. OFAC did note that in one of their policies that they did note that they must comply with sanctions. But that was about the extent of the policy. Just a quick mm. reference, one line or two, and I, I, it may have been a code of conduct or whatever it may have been. They did have a screening vendor in place on February 2016. That's when they first implemented it. However, they only screened the customer names against the relevant sanctions list, the the SDN list, essentially. What they failed to do.
0: Yeah, what the big gap in that was, was. Yeah, go ahead.
1: What they failed to do, which is what got them into all this trouble, is that they did not screen for prohibited jurisdictions. So all of those sanctions programs that I mentioned earlier, the Crimean sanctions program, Cuban, Iranian, all those basically prohibited transactions with any individual in that region, in that jurisdiction. So this was more than just the SDN list. These would be customers that would not pop up that would not, you know, return a match against the SDN list but still otherwise prohibited under the sanctions regulations and And funny
0: story yeah we've helped clients with this issue where it's the screening the ip address as coming from specific countries and what do you call it geolocation or whatever it's called
1: geo-blocking
0: geo-blocking Mm -hmm. and they did not have geo-blocking you're telling me
1: none of that none of that and you know looking back at the records they were found that yes several ip addresses Came from these sanctioned jurisdictions, you know, which is which is kind of funny because, yes, the, OFAC is now highlighting geo-blocking over the last couple of years as being a very integral tool for virtually any internet company, which is now almost any company, you know, in, in these days. One of the challenges that a lot of these companies have, though, is you know the use of VPNs and other ways to spoof IP addresses. That said. Customers didn't even need to use VPNs with Bittrex. <laughs> Bittrex just wasn't checking at all.
0: And then so there's an example in the in the settlement agreement, or the settlement summary, about mm-hmm. what this led to. And and tell our listeners what happened with that.
1: Yeah, a really funny story. The settlement agreement did highlight one of the key areas where you know, there was a pretty significant compliance failure on Bitrix's part, unfortunately. One customer signed up noting that he was an Iranian citizen using an Iranian address on his address verification and submitted an Iranian passport to confirm his identity. So Bittrex had both the knowledge that he was physically located in Iran and was a citizen of Iran based on his passport. And no one caught that. Nothing picked that up in their systems. And he was verified and free to transact within, you know, a couple of days, I imagine. So really, you know, it, it's kind of funny, kinda of sad at the same time, because that should have been an obvious that should have been an obvious one, right? Company but they really screened, should have caught they that. I
0: screened him through the S he wasn't an SDN. Not but an SDN. Last, yeah, but he was from the country, a prohibited country, and they let him go through.
1: Right. That's
0: crazy. Right.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you know, honestly, during this time frame, this, this is not really too surprising, unfortunately, for the cryptocurrency industry. We've seen this with, you know, with other companies that, you know, we've even worked with where they just don't have the proper processes in place, which is unfortunate because this industry especially has a lot of technical solutions that they can tap into that they've just not been using yet to the, yet to this point.
0: And this was so. This is like back 2014 to 2017. Right. Then I noted some of the remedial measures they took included putting in, you know, sanction screening, geolocation, you know, blocking. There was one other. Well, well if that we could just,
1: just if we could yeah. just shift to the, the A&L side real quick, just some of the yeah. other problems that they had there. Um, okay, go ahead. While we cover, you know, both in parallel like this. FinCEN did note that some of the sanctions violations did overlap with, with their regulations. I mean, those should have been some, you know, they should have filed SARs based on those alone. In many cases, sanctions violations can constitute suspicious activity as contemplated by the AML regulations. Right. In addition to that, they also were known to have direct connections with various illicit activity, including, matrix was used. So rather substantially for access to darknet marketplaces. So this could be Silk Road or all those different hacker havens that you read about in the news where people are trading stolen data, private information, illegal drugs, child pornography, unfortunately, ransomware, and all these other kinds of illegal activities that, you know, are otherwise prohibited. So these transactions were occurring with these marketplaces and Bitrix never did anything about those. Hard to know whether or not they were aware. It's possible they were not because they did not have those capabilities at the time. But if they were, they were, you know, at at the very least, burying their heads in the sand over it. So big issue there. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And they they had a couple things I wanted to note. In 2016, apparently Bittrex averaged 11,000 transactions per day with a daily yep. value of approximately 1.54 million but the next year they were up to an average of 23,800 transactions per day with a daily value of close to 100 million dollars 97.9 and, and from, yeah
1: during that time frame their transaction right. monitoring consisted of two people reviewing spreadsheets manually each day So if you think about
0: (laughs) these would be spreadsheets of transactions, right?
1: Spreadsheets, Excel spreadsheets, and two people going through those per day. So you think of eleven thousand transactions at at its, you know, at its trough, at its lowest point. Eleven thousand transactions per day, and you have two people going through those trying to identify identify what? Right? They apparently had minimal training. It was only part their part-time responsibility. So this wasn't even they weren't even reviewing those spreadsheets full time and it's easy to see why things, yeah. were, things were missed.
0: Wow, and, it, yeah. and apparently it wasn't until April 2017 when they hired additional employees to help the two existing employees. Right. But, you know, Bittrex must have been making really a lot of money at this point in time. And they couldn't hire, you know, they couldn't have more resources available for compliance. I mean
1: yeah and, and and that's the thing it's you know it, it it's pretty disappointing to see but also not too surprising like i said this was the wild west in cryptocurrency 2017 was the the most was was a past bull market we've seen these crazy cycles in cryptocurrency where the prices spike and the activity spikes and 2017 was one of those time periods so it was hard to predict when that was going to come so they were not ready when it hit but most disappointing is that even once it was <clears throat> you know, even once it was there and they were making money hand up or fist, they still did not prioritize compliance. And FinCEN noted that, that it arguably gave them a competitive advantage because they were not investing their resources into compliance. So they were able to keep doing transactions with Iran and, you know, these darknet marketplaces and, you know, profiting off of those. Right.
0: So then the other thing that's interesting to me is that they... Kept going even after 2017, they started to build a program, uh, but it doesn't even sound like their AML program was fully remediated. You know, by 2017, 2018, it just they still had weaknesses in the program.
1: Yeah, in 2017. In 2017, they received a notice from the IRS. The IRS was asking questions about their AML BSA program. And that's when Bittrex really realized (laughs) we don't really have one. We've not really been focusing on this. And, you know, the the funny example from there is that, you know, up to that point, they filed virtually no SARs, no suspicious activity reports at all. And then they received that notice from the IRS. And then that first month they filed 119. (laughs) Wow. So, yeah, clearly this would have been going on for a while and they only just started to take it seriously at that point.
0: How do you um, think Matt they they didn't voluntarily disclose I know I noticed that so they started yep. they it was only after the IRS served the subpoena on them were they was Bitrix that well known in the marketplace that and maybe the IRS noticed that they hadn't filed any SARS and that they were a big player and that's what got the IRS interested in them
1: I think that's probably a piece of it. I I imagine the other piece is that they probably began to report some substantial earnings. And and at that point, I I imagine the IRS noted, you know, surely noticed like, hey, they're an MSB, they should have these programs in place. And we need to figure out, you know, whether or not they do. Um,
0: They hadn't filed any SARS, you know, up to that point, apparently. So to me, you know, like if Coinbase was operating at this time, don't you think Coinbase was probably filing SARS at this time?
1: I have to imagine they were. I don't know for certain, obviously, but Coinbase has had a pretty good reputation for their compliance. You know, they've, they've obviously not been perfect and it's hard to expect any cryptocurrency company at this point would be, but they do have a pretty good reputation. Bitrix here, unfortunately, <laughs> you know, fell yeah. below that. I imagine other exchanges did as well. And, you know, we, we've seen some high-level... You know, reports that investigations are occurring elsewhere, and I won't necessarily name any other companies yet. But it's not surprising that regulators are now really starting to take us more seriously and are looking around to see, you know, to see whether companies are are in (laughs) compliance with both sanctions and AML uh, regulations.
0: You expect more enforcement actions on AML and sanctions against other cryptocurrency exchanges.
1: Without a doubt. Uh, you know, like I mentioned earlier in, in the podcast, it's, in our discussion, we, um, these events go back to 2016 and 2017, and even a little bit before that. And like I said, that was feels like that, that feels like generations ago in cryptocurrency. You know, the speed at which these, at, at which the industry moves is staggering and all with, compliance in the (laughs) backseat. You know, no one's really been focusing on it as until, you know, very, until very, very recently. So regulators are only beginning to catch up. These investigations take time. You know, you can see that the IRS began sniffing around in 2017 and it took almost five years for this enforcement action to come out. So I would expect a significant number of enforcement actions to occur over the next coming years.
0: If you're in... You know, well, there's two questions. One is I have a technical question. In the remediation section for OFAC, they mentioned a blockchain tracing program. And right. do you know how that operates or what does that allow you to do when you're in the you know, operating one of these marketplaces? Yeah, so so first
1: thing, to that, we should note to give BITRIC some credit here is that they did receive, it was a significant mitigating factor in their enforcement action is that, yeah, they were very slow to implement things early on, but they have gone above and beyond what was expected of them. They have done a very good job of now implementing a, you know, substantially better compliance program. So they do deserve credit for that. But yes, one of the reasons why they received that credit is because they did implement a very robust transaction monitoring service. And if I recall, they implemented more than one. <laughs> yeah. And that's the benefit of the cryptocurrency industry. And what more more companies should take a look at and should should rely on is that they do have these... The nature of the blockchain for most of these cryptocurrencies is that it is public, right? The blockchain is usually known as a public ledger. So because of that, you can access that publicly available data and trace transactions several steps back and several steps forward. So at this point, a lot of these companies, and I'll I'll name one, though I'm not necessarily recommending one over another, Chainalysis has been one of the most famous ones. They also now have a database of different wallet addresses that even though they may be anonymous or pseudonymous, they still know those addresses are associated with either sanctioned individuals, uh, darknet marketplaces. Hackers or ransomware or other ransomware activity, and they can alert you as these transactions are occurring saying, Hey, your customer here is engaging with one of these bad actors. You know, this is a major red flag for your compliance program. This could be a violation of you know, AML regulations. Uh, take a look at this. So you can get that data in real time. And then further, you can see if transactions are coming from one of these places. So if someone running a darknet marketplace or you know selling drugs on over the internet on Silk Road is receiving funds from you know in Bitcoin or some other cryptocurrency, they may try and wash those trades through different wallets before coming to your exchange. Now, if you were dealing with cash, you'd never be able to trace that. But because of the public ledger, you can see the full path of where these where these funds came from and these transaction monitoring softwares can alert you To those kinds of risks, so they're actually very robust and give yeah give compliance officers a whole new set of tools to help comply with these regulations.
0: Well, one of the things I was really surprised about in the Colonial Pipeline case was how they were able to trace some of the ransom payment and recover it. And you know that was because they they tracked it down. I think, as I recall, they recovered about eight million. I may be wrong on that, but I was surprised by that.
1: They did recover, and I was surprised by that too because it is very hard to recover cryptocurrency. So I'm not sure if the reasons how, the ways they were able to recover it ever became public, and I'd be curious to know because, well, I'm sure they don't want to reveal their secrets, but (laughs) (laughs) that was an interesting wrinkle in that case. But yeah, that's, yeah.
0: So if you're, let's say you're helping out, I mean, you're, and we do have situations where we have assisted cryptocurrency markets, clients. What do you, what do you recommend to them? How do they get started? And it's clear that they need to have a robust, effective AML program and sanctions compliance program.
1: Yeah, it's a nuanced issue for cryptocurrency companies, especially because on the one hand, they do have a lot of tools they can access that, you know, other MSBs would not necessarily have access to. But they do have their own unique set of challenges, though, as well. You know, at the end of the day, you need to start at the top, right? You need to make sure that the company, the, the CEO, the board of directors is embracing compliance because if they don't do that, the program is screwed from the beginning. <laughs> that's, really, that's really a key piece from there. And then once you, once you develop that, build out the compliance program. Hire a professional that understands what needs to be done in this area. Outside counsel can help, certainly. We've done that for several companies to this point. But a lot of them will hire their own dedicated AML compliance officer, um, sanctions officer, chief compliance officer. You know, all of these are contemplated by the best practices from government guidance. Make sure you have the staff in place. Make sure you have the resources and they're properly funded. Like we talked about, Bittrex got in trouble because they had two people doing transaction monitoring, monitoring part-time. And they were dealing with, you know, 10,000, 20,000 transactions a day. That just, yeah. you know, wasn't enough manpower to, to do that manual process.
0: Well, it seems to me like then, the big challenge is, assuming you have the support, the resources, is always going to be your risk assessment. And then it's going to be monitoring this large number of transactions. And I mean, those just seem like really difficult issues and you need technology and you need capable people who know what they're doing.
1: Right. Right. That's a key. Some of the other things that the regulators gave ITREX credit for, developing the policies and procedures that they needed. Right. Um, they got the transaction monitoring in place, which, you, which we've already talked about. I mean, that really is a key that can cover a lot of gaps in the program while well, you don't want to have those gaps <laughs> in the first place you know the transaction monitoring can save you if those if those are there while you work through some of those you know bitrix went under several independent audits so they were engaging outside experts to take a you know holistic independent look at the program which is key sometimes when you're so focused on your own program you can lose sight of where some of your gaps may be you're so focused on fixing things or certain issues you may be other issues may be going unaddressed so having someone else step in and take a look is you know is really key specialized compliance training you know, you want to right. make sure your staff is properly trained and yeah, that was one of the key issues with those you know four or two saps that were <laughs> doing the transaction monitoring right, right. Um, they weren't you know, even they, trained they never even got any training on what to look for so yeah. you know they're giving them giving them these excel spreadsheets to pour through and you know, it didn't even seem like they you know, were aware of what they needed to keep an eye out for. So, right. Um, All right, yeah. Matt.
0: Well, listen, thank you so much for spending time with us today. If somebody wants to reach you to get in contact with you to clean up their cryptocurrency situation, how do they get in touch with you? What's the best way to reach you?
1: Yeah. And if you have any questions on this, please feel free to reach out. I love talking cryptocurrency and compliance, so I'm the guy to <laughs> gotta reach out to. Yeah. Yeah, and especially because, like I said, I, I think these—you're going to see more enforcement actions in the coming years. The industry is only beginning to catch up. Like I said, these events stem from before the prior cycle, and we just had a crazy cycle in 2020, 2021. That you know we're going to see some major enforcement actions on those from you know down the line as well. But yeah, please feel free to reach out. You can email me at at volkofflaw.com. We'll have my email in the show notes, but please feel free to reach out at any time. I'm happy to discuss.
0: All right. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. We'll get you back. Hopefully, you know, there's a lot of crypto issues going on and we need to get you back on to talk about some of the other issues going on with the crypto these days. It's a busy time. So thanks again for for joining us.
1: Yep. Thanks, Mike. Thanks again for listening to Corruption Crime and Compliance. Please subscribe to the podcast series. The Volkov Law Group believes that every company should have a robust ethics and compliance program. Experience and research show that ethical companies are better performers in the global marketplace. You can learn more about the legal and compliance services we offer at our website, www.volkovlaw.com. You can also follow our award-winning blog, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, and our podcast series. You can contact Michael Volkov at his email address, M. Volkov at Volkovlaw.com.